Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Hi, Micah. Welcome. Hi, Terry. Thank you for having me again. On this Reflections episode, this is actually part one of a conversation that we're having on sex, womanhood, and femininity. And the episodes that we're going to be discussing are 113 with Lisa Selen Davis about her book, Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different, episode 114 with Melissa Falavino on Tomboy Land, an exploration of sex, womanhood, and identity. Episode 115 with Caitlin Meyer on Wiving, a memoir of loving, then leaving the patriarchy. And finally, episode 116, Jessica Taylor on why women are blamed for everything. We're breaking this up into two episodes because this topic of sex, womanhood, and femininity is so broad and has so much complexity and nuance that we wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to discuss first the definition and then later on the ways in which sex, womanhood, and femininity are manifest in different aspects of our society. Right. Let me start first with my experience of reading these books. You know, it's coincidentally, by the way, each of these episodes were interviewing authors who had just come out with books. And it was a very intimate experience for me because when I was reading the book, I had to be thorough and really, you know, pay attention to what they were saying. And there was this thread. I think each of them addressed in their own way that being a woman in this society, there's this defensive position you have to take as a woman where you're rejecting femininity because masculinity is safer. To be a woman is to not be able to be yourself, is to have to embody being the other in a way when you are already the other. So it's this very complex kind of psychic phenomenon that that's what I came to feel that womanhood was about with um, my conversations with these four authors. So what are your thoughts about that? Do you agree? What was your experience listening to these episodes? I agree uh, with the idea of gender, it being a social construct. I believe that both men and women have to somehow redefine themselves and adapt to what society tells them that they should be. Um, so I, I, I believe that in these cases, especially with the first um, case, with the first episode, the, the idea of being a tomboy is sometimes could be attributed to you wanting to avoid the dangers of being uh, a woman uh, by potentially adopting a behavior that is more considered more masculine. So I did learn a lot. It's not a subject that I delved too much into before because it's, it's not necessarily my experience. So I found it fascinating to learn uh, more about it. Were you surprised to learn about the racist history of tomboyism and how like the idea that, you know, only white girls 
in order to propagate the white race. Like white girls up until the age of puberty were encouraged to be physical and be active and to run and play so that they could be physically healthier to be able to breed. Right. And then once they became of age, that then that was not encouraged. Uh, so basically, once they got married and they had children, all this energy um, that they're used to having was sort of, I guess, shut down. Yeah. So was that surprising to you, the racist history? Yeah, absolutely. That was something that I was not familiar with at all. And what about in terms of the ways in which our society has come to define gender where I think, you know, for certain groups of people like radical feminists, you know, they're what's called gender abolitionist. They want to remove this concept of gender, that there is this definite continuum and gender identity is all, you know, it's, it's a social construct. Gender is a social construct. And so part of what I think shows up a lot in Lisa's conversation is that we need to be gender neutral or remove gender from our parenting and then the material aspects of how we raise our children. Yeah, so looking back even at other episodes, we see how society as a whole um, makes that divide so black and white, right? From our advertising, we take a look at the products that we buy. There are male and female versions of different of the same product. And a lot of times, women's products, even for the same product, uh, they seem to be more expensive in some cases. I think that it's, it, it would be of benefit for it to be uh, gender neutral. I, I, don't, I don't think it's helpful for, for society in general. Well, yeah, I mean, for children too, like the fact that girls are socialized to attach themselves to certain kinds of caretaking traits and encouraged to develop those traits to prepare them for motherhood, for example. And boys are encouraged to prepare them for different traits that actually remove them from their ability to be in touch with their feelings and their inner selves and how much harm that's created for boys in our society. Right. What was it like for you growing up in the ways in which gender played a role? So in general, well, as many men my age, I feel that have a similar experience, I was told not to cry, not to, not to show emotion, um, that to be strong was to be either, either stoic or to be angry. I feel that um, in general, in growing up, I felt that anger was probably the only feeling that was, that was acceptable as a boy. I think that um, anything seemed as feminine, or if, for example, I... I, I played with a doll, for example, that would be that would be very taboo and my parents would probably take it away. I, I do remember growing up, I was playing with my cousin, actually, and um, I was playing with Barbies and I was told, no, you should you should play with Ken here because Ken here is a boy. <laughs> and thought okay and I just accepted it and this is the new normal or this is not the new normal this is normal that that was not something that I questioned at, at the moment and you know as a child there's so many things you don't know so 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 I think there's so many things that we're indoctrinated and in, we just don't know uh so we don't really challenge them until we're older and we and we have these discussions did you show anger when you were growing up in general my disposition is not that of an angry person I 
did not really show anger, but I did see a lot of anger on the male figures in my life. That was the example that I was given. In general, I wasn't the type, though, to show a lot of anger. And my family was other members of my family that, that showed anger. Did that make you less valued in the family as a male because you weren't conforming to how they thought you should behave? So did you get less attention or less reward in other ways? In other words, were you punished for not conforming? I wouldn't say I was punished explicitly for not conforming. I was more, more along the lines of guided to what was acceptable behavior, but very strongly. It wasn't, it wasn't as blatant as, well, if you're not playing with a, 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 with a Ken doll or you're not playing with boy toys, then you're going to be punished. It wasn't, it, it, really, it wasn't really like that. I think that not just in the family, but people around me, it was, I was made fun of. For, for example, for doing, for showing, I believe, behaviors that were considered feminine, right? So anything that was feminine was seen as, as bad, not just by my family. I feel like a person like my dad would probably have been more, more critical of something like that. I can remember back in the day, him saying something, something along the lines of like, no, you, uh, boys don't cry or, 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 or be a man, right? And it, it, suggesting that showing feelings is, is, is something that I shouldn't do. I do remember growing up as I was going older, the boys in the family, the males were told that they had to do physical work. So I had an uncle that did a lot of manual labor and he asked us to help him out. And that's one of the things that I had to do as a male. And it wasn't encouraged for uh, the females in my family. It was always like the boys do the heavy work and this is what it is. This is just how it is. This is how it's expressed. This is how, how, how I guess, maleness is expressed. The divide between male and female was very prominent. But like I said, it's not just in my family. It was also in, in the toys that I played with. It was, it was the commercials that I watched. So I'm curious, there was so much discussion with each of these authors around their own consciousness while they were growing up in the ways in which gender as a cultural force in their families influenced them. Did you have this understanding that these were factors that mattered to your parents and to your family? Is this a consciousness that you've acquired as an adult looking back? This is definitely a consciousness that I acquired as an adult. Even though certain behaviors were punished and certain behaviors were encouraged, uh, depending on what they were growing up. It's not something that I noticed as a child growing up. I think when I began questioning things in, in, in general and in life, I was probably more of a teenager and I would start with things like religion, right? Where I started questioning that. Uh, but moving forward, I don't believe that gender was an issue that I questioned until I was probably in my 20s. Um, I would say, yeah, that late. I'm just wondering, I ask you this question because you now, I know you to be someone who seems, well, not who seems, who is very secure in who you are. And you don't, you feel comfortable rejecting societal pressure to behave in a certain way. For example, you're not really a big sports fan. And, and I'm wondering if you didn't have this consciousness really or didn't start to acquire it until you were a teenager, like how did you get through 
growing up to that stage even and have the sort of emotional strength to to like keep all of those family forces at bay without you giving in and saying okay I'm just going to do what you want me to do and be who you want me to be how did you have that level of like self-assuredness believe that I'm not the only one in saying that growing up is not easy it's in so many ways it's difficult dealing with all these pressures from uh, going into school and being bullied because of by, by showing feminine qualities uh, and, and, and doing all these things. At first, that shapes you and, and you create these defenses. But I think my core values were never really let go. I think as I got older and, and gaining more information and becoming more educated on these subjects, I looked back at who I was as a person and I thought, no, that's fine. The way that I am is, is fine and I don't have anything to be ashamed of. Then I took a look at people who shamed others for being gay or for being or, or for showing feminine qualities. And then only, only after I gained this knowledge and this awareness did I feel more confident in, in my person. So back when I was a teenager, if somebody called me gay, I would be very offended. I would be I would feel uncomfortable. It would make me feel very strange. But I feel like maybe in my mid to late 20s, it's not something that I cared about anymore. If somebody called me, whatever they called me, it really doesn't, doesn't, it has no weight. And that's very interesting because we're just going to skip ahead to Jessica Taylor's book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything. And so much of what her work is about is undoing the self-blame that women internalize from a very young age and that society reinforces. And so the fact that you as a man were able to sort of jump back, or not jump back, like be more resilient to not let that shame, that societal shame, have, you know, a stain on you. Whereas for girls and women, you know, it's a harder thing to shed. And so maybe that's like one of the differences between being a woman and being a man in the society is that there's not this level of shame that stays with you. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it's much more difficult for a woman. I think there's so many more pressures that a woman has that a woman that a man does not have to deal with from one of the things that you talked about was the idea of having to have a baby that if you are a woman and you don't have a baby, there's something wrong with you. There's a certain level of, of um, there's, there's these certain pressures that I feel a man doesn't have. Yes, growing up, there are some pressures on a man when it comes to uh, having a child. Like, oh, do you have a girlfriend? You don't have a girlfriend. What's going on? Oh, uh, you, two are, you two are together? You're, when is the baby? Like, although you, you do hear that, I think there's so much more pressure on a female than there is on a man. I have been living by myself for the past couple of years. And I really honestly don't hear a lot of people saying anything about marriage or anything about being uh, with someone while at the same time, I hear other people that I know personally that are close to me that say, my goal in life is to have a family and have kids. And, and that's really important to me. And, and they put all their value into having children and they feel like that's super important. And I don't really, I can't really say that that's all their choice or part of that could be what society and pressures 
have been put upon um, the person because mostly it's females that I feel experience this, right? So I, I, I was told that person that I spoke to that she wants to have a child and it's very important to her that there's, there's there's no other way around it and that's not the only person that I've spoken to like like so many women have told me that having a child would define them and they, their life would be a lot better if they did have children that's a really good point uh, this um, theme that keeps showing up that being a woman in society to have value as a woman is attached to your fertility to your ability to reproduce which is part of patriarchy, right? That you're sort of a vessel for continuation of the family unit and maybe passing down the patrilineal genes. And so when you are past childbearing age, you have less value or maybe no value even. And I think that I can't remember which author, uh, which guest said this, but there's so much freedom for women who get older who aren't valued by their bodies and their appearance and their youth. And they get to like have more. That's why older women have shorter hair. More women, older women have short hair because they don't care about having to look feminine for society to gain male approval or attention. And so this idea of womanhood being defined by the reproduction reproduction is is so limiting in so many ways because if you choose not to have a if you choose not to parent or if you can't then there's so much shame attached to that women who want to have children and are infertile there's so much shame in those conversations that show up when they turn to you know other sources like adoption or IVF and I think that we need to stop that. Now, I'm wondering, in your role as a male friend to these women, what do you do to try to shift the narrative for them so that they understand that their value isn't attached to whether they become a mother? In some cases, I will explicitly tell them that they're like just exactly what you just said, that their value isn't attached uh, to your reproduction, to you being a mother, that there's so many other things that you are that define you. You're a kind person with uh, who loves doing X, Y, Z, that uh, is caring to your friends. Like they may be friends with me and they're wanting or not wanting to have a baby is like the last thing that I think of. Right. So I, they, that's what I would say to them. But it's again, it's not something that I could say like, oh, well, I understand how you feel because that's that's so not true. My parents never uh, question me and say, hey, when are you going to have kids? They, they, that, that pressure on a male, I feel, is, is less, or at least in my case. It's different when it comes to people who have greater wealth and generational wealth because they want to pass on that wealth to the children. They want to have an inheritance, somebody who can be a beneficiary of the inheritance of the estate, of the company, of whatever. Right. And pa pass on the name, for example. So what about the this concept of religion? That played a role in several people's lives, in Melissa's life, in Caitlin's life, clearly growing up Mormon. What did you think about the role of religion in shaping womanhood and femininity? And what has your experience been in how it's shaped your identity as a man? I don't think religion to me was a very big part of my life. I think growing up, I did do it with my family because my family felt that at a very young age that it's important to go to church and uh 
but at, at the same time, when it comes to religion, it's it's not just the religion and your and your values. It's it's the uh, social aspect of it, right? The other people that you meet in church and the community that uh, is built around it. And I feel like I haven't been exposed to a community like that for a very long time. So as a teenager, when I had the choice of not going to church, I never took it. I, I didn't. I well, that's not true. I, I actually did go to camp. A religious camp for for some time when I was younger. But even at a young age, I always questioned the idea of religion. And I don't feel it necessarily, I, I, to me, it's really hard to speak on because I don't feel it, it necessarily impacted me to a degree where uh, it changed my view of, of women or a ro- the role of a woman or, or of a man. I, I Again, I, I feel personally that I can't really speak on it. I've heard many people say, like, for example, the Mormon religion, it, they, they have strict values and strict rules. But uh, growing up Catholic, it wasn't really, and especially in my family, it wasn't really a, a very important part of my life. And it still isn't. Well, you know, I just came across this quote uh, recently, which I thought was very relevant because the role of the church, we've talked about this in past Reflections episodes, where the role of the church is just another arm of patriarchy. You know, it is a, is a social construct, and many, depending on the church as an institution, it's there to reinforce, for sure, gender ideologies and roles. And so, this this quote that I just saw recently on um, Instagram. A lot of pastors have to encourage women to stay with abusive husbands because if they taught women how to recognize abuse and leave it, women would be leaving their churches too. That's very true. That's right. See, that reminds me a lot of, um, of episode 115 with Caitlin Meyer when she said that growing up as a, as a Mormon, and she was sexually assaulted. And uh, she mentioned that she told her mom that. And her mom's response was, that he she asked her did you go did he go to temple and because he went to temple i guess this excused his behavior or he's past that and it's nothing that should be of a concern so yeah that that's just an example of this uh, oppressive patriarchy that caitlin had to deal with and that makes perfect sense right like that i feel like that's very abusive that's very oppressive and and if she i and i i feel that caitlin now is a very different person. I, I, I believe that she doesn't, she's no longer Mormon. So maybe, maybe that quote is 100% right. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely not Mormon anymore. And I definitely, I would say she's constructed her life in a way where she is not shackled to those definitions of what makes her a woman and what makes her valuable. And being, I think, away from the U.S., she lives in Portugal, um, and being older certainly helps, um, you know, not being exposed to the rhetoric of what we get in the U.S. here, um, because so much of what Republican and conservative ideology is attached to is Christian ideology, right? So, for example, like I'm thinking of this week, there was this revelation, I'm sure you saw, that Jerry Falwell... Yeah, the follow. Yeah, that, that's that's a crazy situation. So tell tell me what you thought when you first saw that. Were you surprised? Look, I 
I, I wasn't surprised because in general, that's not something like I don't kink shame. It's something that's completely normal. If it's all consenting adults and you can do whatever it is that you want, it's not a big deal. So for me, if that happened with somebody that I know, okay, that's cool. That's what you like to do. That's fine. I think that it's a really big deal when it comes to religious people. So I think that the hypocrisy is what made it what made it to the news because if your husband wants to watch you do whatever it is that you want again there's i don't find any issue with that right and and it's really just this like the, it's the hypocrisy that matters because people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones right and the fact that they are policing people's relationships from afar and telling the university right, right? Yeah. It, well also just you know from their role as you know a religious figure not just through the liberty university but policing people's behaviors and roles you know what a man should do what a woman should do because the bible says so you know blah 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 and yet their behavior doesn't conform to that and like you said if it's all consenting, it's fine, but then don't tell other people what to do and don't judge them for, you know, living their lives as well. Absolutely. That's, and that's what's wrong I, in the whole situation that the hypocrisy is what is very disgusting about that situation. I want to bring up another theme that came up in Melissa's book, which is the role of guns in its association to defining masculinity. And the reason I want to bring that up is because yesterday, Kyle Rittenhouse, I'm sure you, you've heard, he is someone who is 17 years old and was arrested. He was charged in fatally shooting at least one protester and injuring others in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in protests there. So, uh, and by the way, the protests were about Jacob Blake, you know, this African-American man who was shot seven times from behind on his back. Uh, And so this young man, Kyle, has a history where he was at a Trump rally. He, you know, was a MAGA. Uh, He had some alleged history, wasn't clear from what I read whether the the previous misdemeanors that he was charged with was actually something that was him or another person with his name because he seemed to be so young to have these charges. He's 17 now, so some of these things happened when he was alleged when he was 14. So anyway, the point is that yesterday David Hogg, who is one of the survivors of the Parkland shooting, the high school in Florida, and one of the founding members of March for Our Lives, he, he tweeted about how shooters at his high school um, in El Paso, in Charleston, the church massacre, were all, all white nationalists. And he said, gun violence is a racial justice issue. And so what I wrote, what I tweeted back, is that gun violence is also a gender justice issue because mass shooters, the one thing that um, they have most in common is their prior history of domestic abuse or some sort of sexist or misogynistic crime. And so, you know, I just wanted to bring that up because a lot of people 
retweeted and liked my post. And the fact that, you know, I also talked about how sexism and misogyny, it's been shown many times over, is a gateway to white supremacy, that, you know, sexist views and this mindset of entitlement towards women's bodies, the first other that we're taught is being at home and the first other is is gender, your mother or your sister, before you're taught about the other of race or the other kinds of others. And so if you have this mindset and there's been studies that show that the manosphere is a place where white nationalists target prospective extremists to nurture future extremists, I think this is something that we should call out. And I just am very frustrated with people who talk about white supremacy without talking about male supremacy, because the whole issue about guns is about male supremacy. It's a symbolism of masculine strength, authority, and dominance. I agree. I, it's, it, I, this is something that I feel like I have to bring up more in my car conversations with other people. I've had a conversation uh, not too long ago with someone who identified themselves as Republican. And we have this whole idea of dominance. One of the things that I meant that I talked about with him was the idea of potentially how we treat women right differently in the workplace. And he brought up the idea of like, well, a woman has less value as an employee because if she gets pregnant, then why am I going to hire her? Right. While I feel like it's it's important for all of us to value uh, reproduction. And I believe he does too. It's shocking to me to to have this, this idea of hierarchy and, and how, um, how some people have value just based on, on certain factors that um, feel like the, that in, in general, it's not very helpful, but Going back to the gun issue, right-wing violence is something that I feel we're seeing a lot more of. I feel that it's much more prominent than like exotic terrorism, which is what I feel like many people are worried about, where this idea of these white males uh, causing all this violence isn't isn't seen by a huge number of people in the population as a problem. I don't think that that's something that is is enough resources are put to to address that. I think we've we've talked about in in terms of the past several months, you know, and the subsequent to the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter protests, there's been a groundswell, I think, of organizations and people who have really come forward to commit to being an ally, to to be an anti-racist ally. And I've shared with you, you know, privately and maybe in our conversations here, that when I'm in spaces with other victims advocates who work for, in theory, organizations that serve survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, you know, so basically they're in the gender justice space. And I've asked specifically, when can we have anti-sexism training for these workers? When can we have anti-sexism training for government employees, judges, lawyers, uh, people who run agencies that are serving survivors? Because we need those trainings just as much as we need anti-racism training. And it's, and it's not equal. It's not the same. Examining your racial bias is not the same as examining your gender bias. And, uh, and nobody's really said anything. Nobody's pushed for 
that level of accountability, you know, for themselves and for their organizations. And I think that that just goes to, it's a symptom of sexism. Absolutely. And I I think, again, I agree that this is a conversation we should really have more of and hold people accountable to. Uh, I don't think that that's a conversation that's that's, um, spoken about enough in the media. Talking about Jessica Taylor and her book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything, this basically came about this book from her PhD dissertation, where she did years of study and attitude. She created, you know, all these kinds of psychometric assessments for people's proclivity towards victim blaming and blaming women in various acts. Um, So it's very academic, the book but still dense with data, very dense with data. But I think the most important thing about the book is that it really helps to center our conversation around what I think has become normalized and made invisible, which is this pervasive sexism and internalized sexism that makes us not even recognize our own participation in how we treat women, how we define womanhood, what value women have. Like you were talking about, you know, your friend saying if she, he doesn't want to hire a woman because they'll be pregnant. So there his, their value is based on what he can extract from them in productive output, in economic right. output, and not as a person. And he doesn't see that she can have value. She can be a better employee as a parent, that there's skills and a perspective that she can bring to the organization, to her role by enriching her life. And he doesn't see her as a, as a person, in other words. That's right. And, and that's, and that's what's, what's really shocking to me. I think, see, one of the major things that I think would be a possible solution is education. And one of the things that shocked me a little bit about Jessica was that she said that education in school may not necessarily be that beneficial that we should focus more on culture. And at first I was, I was surprised, but I think what she meant was the education should come from the family where children should be brought up with these values in mind. So, but I don't, I, I, I do still think that education may potentially not hurt and be of value in my opinion, but I, I don't know the studies it was like. I mean, that's kind of, you know, what the why our podcast is structured the way it is, right? Where each episode is like a dot connecting this thread, this, this fabric of um, society and how we can reconstruct society so that we are centering agency and we are centering equality and freedom and whole personhood, right? And so the the idea that we can only do it by changing policy is obviously not uh, not realistic because we need to change ourselves first. And so much of what you know, like this conversation around women, sex, womanhood, and femininity is about how some children and girls, you know, and boys how we are brought up in our parenting and socialized in those messages that are reinforced in society and culture, they are harmful to those ends that we want. And so that brings me to the conversation, to the piece that I wrote around Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, how we can stop Epstein. 
I know you and I both saw the four-episode documentary, and it was just, to me, there were so many messages in that documentary that I think were applicable across, not just around sexual predation, but about, in general, accountability for any kind of abuse of power. Yeah, it, it's... It, it. Yeah, it, it was uh, hard to watch. Um, it really did highlight a lot of problems uh, in our society where people in positions of power maintain that power by having other people do nothing. People seeing exactly what's going on and not saying anything. Fear, they're using tactics that abusers usually use. They're consistent whether you're doing it in a, in, whether it's a, a single couple in a marriage, but in this case, it's so much bigger, but the tactics seem, they, they remain the same. It, it, it was, it was very difficult to watch. So, uh, but I, it, it was helpful. Did you feel, for example, like the tactics around grooming, for example? Right. Part of grooming is to normalize um, these, you're alternating. So this chart of coercion that we talked about with Jess Hill, Albert Biederman's chart of coercion that he developed from studying prisoners of war, Korean prisoners of war, actually mapped, you know, the same tactics of domestic vi- domestic abuse and course of control. And so part of it was alternating between periods of normality and, and violence and so and violation. And so being able to so Gillian Maxwell participated too, where she and Jeffrey Epstein would watch movies together with some of the girls that they essentially trafficked. And they would take them on trips. They would have meals together. They would do normal, quote-unquote, family things. And, and then they would alternate it with, you know, having these girls basically be prostituted out to these wealthy men who came to be, I guess, part of Jeffrey's network and it was basically this pyramid scheme of sex trafficking and child sex trafficking because most of the girls were underage. And it, one of the most horrifying things is what the, the tactics that he used to indoctrinate more, well, to get more people into the scheme was asking, giving the girls additional resources, money to get more of them involved in this. There was this one girl that was that brought in her sister and she felt so much shame afterward because she she knowingly brought in her, a family member and, and caused her so much pain. And I'm sure that a family like that is it, it, really difficult to recover from something like that. So it causing so much pain all around. Um, I, I really hope that uh, Maxwell it opens up the door to more people. Uh, involved in this scheme. Wait, so let me just get this straight. So you're part of how they identified potential recruits to their pyramid scheme is to have this profile of a young girl who was vulnerable, right? So she was either economically vulnerable or she came from a home where there was something lacking. There was abuse or neglect. Maybe she was sexually abused. Maybe there was domestic violence, whatever it was. And so if it was consistently negative in a certain way and they were able to sort of, you know, give her like a different environment where there was material wealth and material comfort, 
even though spiritually they were being harmed, right, and physically they were being harmed, this alternating between comfort, safety, and or the illusion of safety and violation made it still better in a way, right, than being consistently poor or hungry or having to care for yourself. And so I think that this speaks to why we need to address gender equality in our society, that if girls are systemically less able to earn as much money and we keep confronting the glass ceiling and that there's all of these systemic inequities in health, where now with COVID, we've talked about not having affordable childcare, not having affordable health care, not having economic an economic safety net in our society that has been that's being exacerbated by gender inequalities, that this calls for the need for us as a society if we want to protect our children to be able to address those inequalities. Right, by using policies that help everyone. I think that um, in general, remember I just mentioned that uh, I spoke to somebody who identifies as Republican. One of the other things that he says is that he has an issue with the idea of equality. Um, And I believe that his reasoning is more along the lines of like, well, the harder you work, the better you are going to be economically and that you'll be, you'll, you'll, you'll be above. And this is a survival of the fittest kind of, a kind of situation. And I think that that kind of thinking makes him believe that certain people have more, more value than others. And if you are in a situation where you're lacking or you're suffering or you're going through things, it's really your fault. And again, he's a white male. So it, to him, he, maybe one of the things that he doesn't like speaking about is privilege. And I think that the reason for that is because he doesn't want to recognize his privilege because then it'll hold him accountable for this inequality. And he doesn't like to see. So, so to him, of course, it, it, it would make more sense for him to just care about himself. But that's basically what you're saying is that's the definition of the Republican platform. It's about individualism versus, you know, Democrats, which is more about collectivism, right? And that he has this pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of ideology where he thinks that in theory that works if we had a just society, if we didn't, if we had systems that weren't crippled by bias, racial and gender bias, and we were all starting at the same starting point. But by definition, because we have historic racial discrimination and gender discrimination and other forms of discrimination, people aren't starting at the same point in the starting line. And so other people have a head start. And that's the definition of privilege, that it's unearned, that even if you don't um, recognize it, you still benefit from it. Right, exactly. So that's, uh, yeah, so yeah, that, that's, that's what I had that conversation about. I think that this leads into situations like Epstein, where you have a person that has a lot of power and a lot of control, and he has the resources to relate vulnerable women, in this case, and the other, I guess, horrible talent that he has is to be able to recognize these vulnerable women and be able to manipulate them the way he did. What I want to ask you about, um, you know, we're talking about vulnerability here and as a, as a characteristic and personality trait that made them more likely to be a target. 
So what, how, where does Ghislaine Maxwell fit in? Because she came from a wealthy family. You know, I mean, I, I have no idea what her background is, and I haven't read anything or uh, read enough to know. Maybe she had a neglectful parent. Maybe she, you know, her, her childhood, um, she was violated. You know, I, I, I haven't read anything to confirm or deny that, but somehow she had to have been vulnerable herself, right, to be, to be a willing participant at some point and partner with Epstein, but I don't know to what extent. Like, it's not like, you know, when you're watching sort of Law & Order SVU episodes where you have, you know, brothels and sex trafficking and the people who are the co-conspirators, they were originally victims. And then in order for them to survive, they had to take on the role of basically being a recruiter. And so I think we recognize from the Epstein documentary that the girls, even though they were participating in the pyramid scheme and recruiting other girls because they were getting money, that they were doing so because they were still vulnerable. They needed the money. But Ghislaine, she doesn't, she's wealthy, so she doesn't need the money. So I'm curious, what is your perspective on how accountable she is? Like, is she a victim or is she a perpetrator or is, is there no clarity about that? Look, even even in, in, in other situations like uh, looking at current uh, like looking at uh, Trump, right? I'm sure he's gone through a lot of things. He 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 was I'm sure emotionally abused as a child. Taught these sexist values. This this way of growing up could not possibly result in a in a in a sane, well-rounded person. So you are. By by some extent, you know we're all victims that by be, just because of the society that we live in, right? The values that we were taught and the patriarchy teaches us that this is how we're supposed to be. So I, I don't think that that is going to excuse Maxwell necessarily of what she has done. Uh, she and she has done so much to allow these things to happen, right? Because. I'm pretty sure that one the the vulnerable girls may not have done the things that they did if it wasn't was not for her. So I do believe that she still needs to not just explain everything that she did, but but hopefully hold other people accountable because I'm pretty sure that Epstein and her weren't the only ones involved in this pyramid scheme. So, so yeah, so my answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know. She could have been abused or she may not have been abused, but I, I do think that we still need to hold her accountable. So because it doesn't matter what her history is at this point. Like she's, she's made enough choices because why? Because she's not, she's not poor like the other girls that she recruited. And so they were clearly, there was some level of quote unquote coercion the economic coercion because they needed it for survival. Yeah, I mean, yes, but <laughs> look, I I I, th- I think if you do something wrong, you 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 should be held accountable. And I'm 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 more thinking about the people and the victims that are still possibly out there that could be saved from the abuse that they're currently possibly going through. You know, I I I don't like to consider our justice system to be up. I, I, I don't, ultimately, I don't want our justice system to be 
that of uh, vengeance, right? I know in previous episodes, we talked about this. It should be a place where people can reform and, and be better and do good for society. I, I don't like the idea of like, well, she's a bad person. She should pay for all her, uh, all her um, crimes and, and, and I want her to suffer. I wonder, like, that's not what the point of this is. I don't want that. I'm more concerned about what good she can do now. So do you think that she can do better? Should we even care about that? Because that's part of what I talked about in my essay about Epstein is, should we even be having that conversation? Or does it need to be held concurrently? Because if we don't even have accountability, if we don't even prioritize it as a culture or as a system, the criminal justice system doesn't prioritize accountability in so many different ways, even in terms of the police officers, the law enforcement, who don't take victims and sex crimes and domestic violence seriously, right? That's right there from the beginning. We already have a culture of sexism that keeps the people who are the first level enforcers from being able to help the victims. And so if if that's the case, you know, where we don't have accountability, shouldn't we ask for accountability first? And whether or not that person changes is like a different issue because at this point, I don't care if she changes. I want her to cooperate um, so we can identify all the other co-conspirators who should be also arrested. But, you know, I don't really care if she stays in jail for the rest of her life or if she becomes a better person because that's not part of the equation that I'm looking at. What I'm looking at is whether or not her being held accountable can prevent and deter other people from engaging in those same behaviors. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that she's not, she shouldn't be held accountable. Absolutely, she should be held accountable for her actions. Um, and the good that I'm saying is not to let her free so she can open up an organization. To, no, I'm saying for her to give up the people, the other potential people in this crime ring that may exist. And I'm, I don't know if they definitely exist or not, but I feel like that, that she may have potentially more the possibility of, of helping out in that way. But if she stays in jail, I agree. She did horrible, horrible things. She did so much harm. It's, it's, it, she cannot possibly make up for all the harm that she did. If anything, I would, I would hope that she would be able to, to, to prevent harm, uh, current harm or future harm for other possible victims. But to be held accountable? Absolutely. There's nothing that she can do, though, to make up for all the horrible things that she did. So I... I I agree with you. Right. So let's turn to, because this is the week of the Republican National Convention, and the idea of Melania. So Melania Trump, for many people in the domestic violence community, see her as a victim because she, clearly we all see Trump as an abuser and a predator and a child rapist. And whether or not he's been convicted of it is besides the point because his behaviors are such that it's affecting us in that way. And certainly, in terms of the sexual assault and rape allegations, there's at least 24 women who have accused him of that. So I don't need to know any more to to believe them. But in terms of Melania, you know, as his third wife, someone who clearly, you know, for the first year and a half, I don't know if you remember, she was in New York while he was in the White House, right? So they weren't even living together. So it was unprecedented. And I'm sure you've seen the video clips where, you know, they're walking she together. Her hand. Yes, yeah. yes, right. He <laughs> doesn't. She doesn't want to even hold his hand, and is so disgusted by him that she doesn't want to touch is. him. And and so, if there's no affection between them, 
does that make her a victim or is she also complicit by not speaking out against his policies? Does that make her a conspirator? You know, it, it, it's hard to define one person as one thing because their people are so multifaceted. So I, it, it, it's a nuanced conversation. I agree that she's complicit, but at the same time, I, I, I do feel that she's a victim. So I feel like we need to judge her like um, Ghislaine Maxwell in the same way as we judge Ghislaine Maxwell, holding her accountable for the horrible things that she's doing. And by supporting the administration, that, that's something that... Melania isn't committing any crimes. It's just no, no, wrong I, from no, 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 a moral you're right, you're right, you're level right. and, and an ethical level. People think that her silence is complicity with all of the damaging and harmful and intentionally harmful and destructive policies that her husband supports. So yeah, is yeah, her so silence... And even if she's parroting, like in her speech this week, you know, she's parroting and supporting him, even if she's not authentic in her support, does that make her guilty from a moral perspective? Her silence does make her, in my opinion, guilty from a moral perspective. Uh, But I, I feel like in order for Trump to become president, he needs to appease certain populations. So he has to have a wife, right? He has to, he has to have somebody to take that position. I don't think he values that position. It could be anybody. Melania just happens to be that person. So it's difficult to judge her for for who she is. I do think that she, in many ways, is opportunistic because she, her rhetoric does change based on what situation she's at, right? In the past, she's, she's been asked, hey, what if uh, your husband cheated on you? And she said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll definitely leave him. I believe and that's something that she, she, she changed in, right? Uh, so in many ways, yes, she is complicit. In summary, looking at all of these episodes in, in how women are defined, in how women are policed, in how systems and society and families contribute to that, what do you think we can do differently to, as individuals right now that we can share with our listeners so that they could start taking steps to confront these harms? Well, first, I feel and I'm very supportive of, of, our, of our podcast. And um, I feel as a listener, just listen to the episodes. There's so much that I have learned and, and, and I hope that uh, you share this information with others. The same, in the same way, I try to have conversations with as many people as I possibly can to get their point of view and, and share ideas. I think um, as, as a listener, always ask questions. I always have so many questions and there's so much nuance to so many conversations that we speak about and so many, all these topics, there, things are not always black and white. And it's really important to discuss what the details are because if you listen to certain people in the media, you may not necessarily get the full context of all the stories and, and, and the different points of views for you to be able to make your own decisions. So I would suggest inform yourself as much as you can. I think that's my major, my major ask of you if you're listening to this. Well, I agree with you. And I, I want to appreciate you, Michael, for your ability to not just see the grays, but hold us accountable to examining them in our conversations. Because 
I think so much of what's happening, especially in this feminist space around sex and gender, is this kind of censorship where people aren't having conversations. And if you are on one side, if you have a certain belief, or if you're on the other side, then they're just deciding not to talk to one another. And, and that just, just not having that conversation is in and of itself harmful because we need to be able to come together if we're working to fight patriarchy and to end sexist oppression and sexist exploitation and violence that we recognize it and we recognize that we're on the same side because these forms of oppression and control are manifest in so many different ways in our society. And so all of us need to come together who are working to end sexism, to end racism, to end homophobia, etc. And and having this kind of cancel culture approach is, is I think, going to be ultimately very harmful for us because we're not coming to the table to have conversations and deciding what is it that we have in common and how can we use that commonality and shared values to advance each of our causes in a collective way. Right. Going on from what you said, one of uh, my staff has a quote on her email signature by Desmond Tutu, who states, uh, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor which, which I, I couldn't agree more. So I do feel that when we do have conversations with people in general, it's really important to let people know what, where we can, they can find resources to be informed and be able to take a side, be able to take a stand against what we feel are our injustices, to address these injustices. Well, it's been a very rich conversation, Michael. I'm always grateful to have these conversations with you as a thought partner. And I look forward to having our second half of the conversation on sex, womanhood, and femininity soon. So keep safe and keep healthy. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.